All right, good morning. We are going to dive right into this portion of scripture. We don't normally cover this much at a time, and so I thought a good way to go at it is thematically as opposed to verse by verse. So if you look on the board, I've picked out a few of the themes that I saw. You probably saw a lot more, and I've given verse references to where I saw if you just want to look at it in your own time, um, to just be encouraged, to just learn and grow. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so in this section, chapter 951 to 1927, it's partitioned as such because Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. We know what happens in Jerusalem. And we can also assume Theophilus, the person whom Luke is writing to, also knows. This phrase and reference of going to Jerusalem hooks the reader. The events in Jerusalem, the capture, the questioning, the beating, and crucifixion of the Son of God on the cross all happen in Jerusalem. And the way that Luke writes, we actually haven't seen Jesus in Jerusalem since he was a 12-year-old boy. Luke is building anticipation. He writes an orderly account of everything that has happened in Jesus' ministry leading up to the great event in Jerusalem and even the events after in the book of Acts. And it is so that Theophilus and we have certainty. In this section, a bulk of Jesus' teachings are presence, and so this makes up a third of this gospel account. In it is teachings and parables. These teachings show us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus and then what it doesn't look like. If I were to sum up these 10 chapters, it would be the cost and joys of following Jesus. There is no gray area in Jesus' teaching. In fact, he's very black and white, which can rub people the wrong way. He's teaching this way because there's a bit of urgency. There's no time to beat around the bush. In chapter 951, he says the days from, he, it says that he is days from the events that will take place in Jerusalem. So he has a mission on his mind, and that is to seek and save the lost. He has come to bear the sins of the world and give salvation to those who believe. Let's just turn to the beginning of Luke in chapter 1, verse 76. This will just kind of orient ourselves here. This is Zechariah's prophecy. And it says, and you, I'll wait for everyone to get there. It says, and you, child, that is John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Jesus is going to save people by making a way for their sins to be, get, be forgiven before a holy God. Turn a page ahead to 2.29. This is Simeon's prophecy. Lord, in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then he makes this remark to the Mary, the mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus' mission, the one who is going to bring salvation, is going to reveal what is on the inside, what is in the heart of man. And Simeon alludes that there will be hearts that oppose Jesus' mission. There are two heart postures that we are going to, that are going to be revealed. Let's just turn back again to chapter 1, verse 51. This is Mary's song. It says, He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Either a humble heart or a proud heart will be exposed. And we are going to see who salvation belongs to in these 10 chapters and what their heart posture is. We will see what an opposing heart looks like and what a humble heart looks like. So there, so let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the whole book of Luke and how it teaches us how to come to you. And more importantly, how you have come to us, Lord. And so we pray that you would encourage us through your word. I pray that it be your words that I speak today, Lord, and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot of themes woven throughout these chapters. And you probably picked up on some of them. Some of them included money and Um, possessions, which we'll briefly touch on together. But typically, when Jesus was speaking about rich people or love of money, it wasn't in a good way. In chapter 16, verse 14, it says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money ridiculed Jesus. Their love for money was associated with their opposition to Jesus. Other themes are the inclusion of people who, according to society, were least likely to be accepted by God. For example, there was the tax collectors, sinners, poor, lame, blind, demon-possessed, and women. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, it talks about how Jesus even received children. And children were often seen as a burden, but Jesus actually says that we should be like a child, and that we should have faith and trust like a child does. A reversal is happening through Jesus' life and ministry. The humble are being exalted and the mighty are being brought down. There's also a theme of prayer, and you probably picked up on that as well. There's small references, like in chapter 10, verse 2, where he says to pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest. Or in chapter 11, when it says that Jesus was praying in a certain place. That chapter also continues on with the disciples asking him to teach them how to pray. There's also this theme of judgment. Let's turn to chapter 10 together. Verse 13. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus pronounces judgments on cities he has ministered to because of the rejection of him. In chapter 11, verse 29, there's also judgment in light of his preaching. You can turn there. Um, Jesus makes reference to Jonah who went to Nineveh and he told the people God's judgment is coming and if they don't repent, they will be destroyed. But they repented. But Jesus, who is better than Jonah, the better prophet, has come to the people and they hardened their hearts to his message. And so he judges their disposition. If you look, if you go back to chapter 10, verse 16, it says that the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus is saying that when his disciples are rejected, they're rejecting Jesus and God. And rejection is one of the biggest themes in this section. We see it here in chapter 10, but it's in chapter 9, verse 51. It's in chapter 11, 12, 13, and so on. And I made references to it on the board. 
Rejection of Jesus takes place in some shape or form in every chapter of this section. So I think it would be good for us to dive in a little deeper into that theme. And then we'll also look at the theme of humility and repentance, since that is the heart posture that gains acceptance by God. So let's go to 951. This is our beginning. This is the rejection of the Samaritan village. This whole town, upon hearing from messengers, don't want Jesus to enter. The message that Jesus' disciples have brought is one they don't want to accept. They, in short, reject him and his message. This text also shows Jesus' mission. James and John are like, let's burn him to the ground. It's a bit extensive, but Jesus rebukes them. He hasn't come to bring judgment just yet. He will bring judgment, as we have just seen, but it hasn't come at this moment in time. In this current time, Jesus is just days before the cross. He has come to bring good news of salvation. So the Samaritan village has rejected Jesus. Is that it? Should all Samaritans be thrown into the bad books? In chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It not only shows what it looks like to be a good neighbor, to give up of your time and resources to show love and care and compassion to someone, even a stranger, but I think one of the reasons it's added in so soon after the Samaritan villages, the Samaritan's rejection of Jesus is to show that Jesus came to judge hearts and not ethnicity. The Samaritan village rejects Jesus, but he does not reject them completely. He does not cast fire down upon them. There is still time to repent. Let's turn to Luke 18, verse 18. A lot of flipping. We're going to do a lot of flipping in this. So what we read here is about a rich man who wants eternal life. He approaches Jesus with a bit of flattery. Good teacher, he calls him. And Jesus, who doesn't beat around the bush, with a bit of a stark tone, why do you call me good? In a sense, are you saying I'm God because only God is good? Jesus goes on to list commands that the rich man should follow. And the rich man, hearing the first five commands, feels pretty good about himself. He's obeyed them all. He hasn't committed adultery, no murder, doesn't steal or lie, and he honors his parents. He's a pretty good guy. But Jesus puts his heart to the test. He tells the rich man to do three things. Sell everything he has, give his money to the poor, and follow Jesus. If he does, he will have treasure in heaven. He will have eternal life. This is hard for the man to hear. It actually makes him quite sad. He loves his possessions more so that the idea without them makes his heart ache. Jesus goes on to say that it's extremely hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom because their love for money is so much greater than their love for God. In fact, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter. This shocks the disciples. They were under the assumption that the rich were rich because God loved them, that God had blessed them. So that poses a question from the disciples. Who can be saved? To which Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This man's love for money is hindering him from following Jesus. He is more concerned about obtaining eternal life than knowing God. Jesus' statement to sell all that he has is superfluous. This isn't, call, this isn't a call to us today. It's not a sin to be rich. Jesus is going at the man's idol, his greatest love, and the man is sad to hear he would have to give it up. Jesus is probing the heart. Do we believe Jesus is of greater value than our possessions or desires? Is he of greater value than what we treasure most? <coughs> P. 
Peter takes a moment to confirm if they are doing what Jesus asked of the rich ruler. In verse 28, it says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. In a sense, did we pass the sell-all test? Jesus responds affirmatively. All who leave their possessions and loved ones for the sake of the kingdom will be rewarded in this lifetime and with eternal life. All who love Jesus more than riches and family will gain eternal life. And we know as we gather here now to study this book, we have gained a family in Christ. So what is your greatest treasure? Is it Jesus? What are we trusting in? Is it a full bank account? The text and other parts of scripture confirm it is not saying we need to be financially poor to receive salvation or that we should not love our families to have eternal life, but that our love and trust in Jesus ought to be more. Does this feel impossible? It's possible with God who can change the heart and can change our desires. Let's go to the third set of rejection, and that's in chapter 37. Oh, sorry, chapter, that's really long. Chapter 11. <laughs> chapter 11, verse 37. In our passage, they were, there's a reference to um, Pharisees and lawyers, and lawyers are also known as scribes. These are people who kept the law and invoked others to keep it as well. They also added to the law. They were morally good people, and they were the religious elite of their day. These Pharisees are so good on the outside, but they were full of greed and wickedness on the inside. As we can see in verse 39, they lacked a desire for justice and love for God. They were full of pride as they saw honor and distinction. The Pharisees and lawyers who studied the law, instead of leading people to God, they were leading them away. They were burdening the Jewish, Jewish people. Jesus then indicts um, a charge of mass murder. From Abel to Zechariah, from Genesis to the last book in the Hebrew Bible, and then the future killings of the apostles, there is an immense amount of blood on these Pharisees' hands. And it's because they are hindering people from entering the kingdom. And what do these Pharisees and scribes do? They harden their hearts and plan to trap Jesus. It's ironic. They have the blood of the prophets on their hand, and they plan to add Jesus' blood to it. This is a warning to us ladies who are teachers, who are in this room or who teach down the hall in children's church, or even at home with our kids. Are we handling the word with care and value? ministering it to our sisters and to our children, giving life and encouragement. This doesn't have to be just for teachers. It can be for our daughters and friends and coworkers. We, when we offer the word, do we give it to others in love and honor for God and to those who are in need of hearing the good news? We don't want to be burdening people with, our, with the word of God. And if we need to rebuke, are we showing them Jesus, where there is forgiveness, mercy, grace, and reconciliation? Don't let people sit in shame and guilt when we know there is forgiveness and freedom from sin through Jesus. Let us not be the reason people reject Jesus and hinder them from entering the kingdom. The Pharisees hear these judgments on them, and they harden their hearts. They refuse to repent, and so they reject Jesus. This rejection will lead others astray as well. So we've looked at three ways Jesus and his mission is rejected. And then what better, what better place to look now than what it looks like to have a humble heart that accepts Jesus. So let's turn to verse 7 of chapter 14.
Jesus is giving a lesson on dinner etiquette to his Pharisee friends. He basically tells them, don't sit up near the host in the off chance you'll be asked to move and therefore be put to shame. In that time, dinner parties were in the shape of a U and the host would sit at the bottom of the U. And everyone wanted to sit near that guy. It was a place of honor. You would probably be the object of jealousy for some. And so I just think of the cool table in high school. And I did not sit at the cool table. I wasn't even in the cafeteria. I ate in the hallway. And so, but I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be in. I wanted to be part of the it crowd. And so the Pharisees were like teenagers. They wanted to be made much of. And Jesus says, don't desire these things. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted in much better ways than a man who humbles himself at a dinner party. God will exalt you if you stand before him humbly, not above him, but exalted to be able to even dwell with him. How is this possible? Luke tells us humility is key. The humble will be exalted. Do you remember earlier on when we mentioned Mary's song? He has exalted those of humble estate. So how are we to be humble? Do we sit furthest away from the host when we're invited to a dinner party? No. But if we look at this parable, a way to be humble is not seeking our own glory or praise of man. This is not extensive by any means, but this is a start. This is where we start to think of ourselves less and others more. Are we putting others before ourselves? Let's turn and look at another parable regarding humility and with it repentance. Let's turn to chapter 18, verse 9. We look at a scene with a Pharisee and a tax collector in the temple, a righteous man versus a sinner. Off the bat, the Pharisee makes a statement. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Does not this statement just sound so proud? Like, yes, he's thanking God. But if you look down at verse 12, he's saying how he's not like other men. It's because he fasts twice a week and gives tithes. He's boasting in his works. He also says he's not like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even the lowest of lows, like this tax collector next to me. His ego is full to the brim. Imagine you heard me in a prayer meeting saying, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like so-and-so. You would hopefully, upon hearing it, be like, what? That just screams proud and egotistic. You can tell from this Pharisee's prayer, it's not from a good heart posture before God. He's looking and judging others other people around him and then we get to the heart the the tax collector who can't even look up his head is hung low and he's beating his chest and he pleads god be merciful to me a sinner he feels the guilt and shame that sin brings look at verse 9 he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt Jesus is sharing this, people because, this parable because people are trusting in themselves and their own righteousness. The tax collector knows that he brings nothing to God and pleads for mercy upon his soul, and God justifies. This is great news. The humble will be exalted. There are times at the end of the day where I'm like, I think I did not too bad today. And as I was reading um, these 10 chapters, I was constantly reminded that I am a sinner and I am in need of mercy. But I also know that when I come before God, that I am forgiven because of Jesus, who set his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross, to bear the penalty of my sin, and that I am forgiven through his blood sacrifice. 
The humble will be exalted because of the death and resurrection, because of the Savior who humbled himself. Ladies, are there times when you feel you're not worthy to look up? Know that the Father sees you. He knows your heart, and he is merciful. For those who are in Christ, we can confidently draw near to the throne. There is now no condemnation upon us. This is good news for the sinner. Let's look at one more example of humility. Let's turn to 19, verse 1. Hopefully you don't have to turn your page much. So we know that tax collectors can be in the kingdom of heaven. We've just looked at the, what, this last parable that showed that. And throughout these chapters, we've seen Jesus be associated with tax collectors. And typically when you see the title tax collector, it's in conjunction with sinner. This was mostly because tax collectors were seen as traitors, joining the Romans and extorting the Jewish people for money. But nonetheless, Jesus has been seen dining and associating with them. And now we get to Zacchaeus, who is not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He's the only one to have this title in all the Gospels. And it seems Luke makes note of this. Zacchaeus is good at his job, and he's favored by his employers, and he's super rich. But Luke also points out that the rich, throughout these 10 chapters, that the rich have not actually had a good report with Jesus. So there's a bit of tension here. Will Jesus befriend this tax collector, or will he rebuke him? There's also a note that Zacchaeus is short. And because of his stature, he has to climb up a tree, which I'm sure, and I would never try to climb a tree. <laughs> so it shows his determination. And he's climbing up because according to verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And Jesus sees him, and he knows him. This is a great glimpse of, at his divinity. He knows his name, and even better, he knows his heart. Jesus immediately says in verse 5, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This makes Zacchaeus so happy. Zacchaeus just wanted a glimpse at Jesus, but now he'll get to fellowship with him face to face. But this made other people grumpy. Because Jesus is staying with the sinner, this is just outright outrageous. There's judgment that has been made on this tax collector by the people around, and so Zacchaeus chimes in. If you look at verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I was trying to understand if Zacchaeus was already doing these things, or if he was declaring that he will do them. And so I looked at a commentary by Daryl Bach, and he would say the former. And verse 8 is in light of Jesus coming to Zacchaeus. Verse 8 shows a heart that has been changed by Jesus. Zacchaeus is going to give away half of his possessions and give them to the poor, and he's going to repay four times the amount he has taken wrongfully. Zacchaeus' Zacchaeus' love for God expresses itself in a way that loves others and desires to right any wrongs. His heart changes drastically. A tax collector that once was greedy is showing generosity and compassion, and a heart that didn't care what came to those who exploited is seeking restitution beyond standards set by the law. Zacchaeus is humbled that Jesus would associate himself with him, that he immediately becomes changed, and you can see it through his actions. Humility came with repentance. These traits about Zacchaeus, his generosity, his compassion, his love for justice, is commended by Jesus. Jesus says salvation has come to him. Who can give this much and seek justice if they are not transformed by God? 
A humble heart sees God's love for the needy and desires to join in that love and show compassion and justice. A heart changed by God stewards their money in ways that honors God and is for the good around them. Do you remember the rich ruler? Zacchaeus didn't give away everything he has, but his heart is exposed before God. And for us to see that his love for money has been replaced for his love for Jesus. Look at verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Lost in what? Lost in sin. Lost in darkness. That's everyone. That's the tax collector, the Pharisee, the rich, all the nations. Turn to chapter 15, verse 1. I'll read 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. There is so much joy from the Father and the Son and the Spirit when one person repents. Think about that. There's seven billion people in the world, and when each one places their faith in Jesus, the whole heavenly realm rejoices. God loves the world. God loves his people. He sent his son to seek out sinners and to save them. No other religion is like this. All religions have people working their way to find favor with their lowercase g God. Our God reveals himself to us and saves us. Whether that's through his word or the preaching of the word or our witnesses, God saves us from our sin. How great is the grace and love we see in Jesus. So I wish we could go deeper. There's so much more in these 10 chapters, and I hope that the, the discussions in your, um, in your tables have been just fruitful and profitable. Um, but we, we can't keep going. So I want us to remember that there are two heart postures before God. There is one that is proud and rejects God's message and his offer of salvation through his son. Or there is one that is humble and repents of sin and accepts Jesus' invitation to follow him. Jesus' message is black and white. Either you are with him or you are against him. Let us continue to read and listen to God's word so that we would know how to follow him and how to grow in our love for him more. It is better to have Jesus. The Pharisees thought it was better to have a good track record. The rich ruler thought he would lose more by following Jesus. But we saw in Zacchaeus that he could give half of his possessions away because of his love for God. <clears throat> Jesus can associate with sinners. Let's contemplate that this week. I don't know what life looks like for you, all its challenges and difficulties. I don't know what your aspirations are. But Jesus came and set his face towards Jerusalem. And he, and he came to seek and save people at the cost of his own life. Let us not look to our own good works. Let us not find security in our finances. But let us look to the Savior who humbled himself for us, who sought us and saved us, and who, prayed, who paid the price of salvation in full. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your son. 
We thank you that he did what we cannot do. And we pray that you would, in your mercy, Lord, keep us close to you. Hold us fast, Lord. May we continue to look to Christ and what he has done, Father, and that it would cause our love and praise for you to continue to grow each day. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Get quick. Get quick.